people that are experiencing homelessness or houselessness, people that don't have an address. I'm worried about them. Thousands of Alaskans could lose their Medicaid benefits. From Alaska Public Media, this is Statewide News on Alaska News Nightly for Friday, August 25th. Good evening, I'm Casey Grove. Also tonight, a huge swath of south-central Alaska is under a flood watch this weekend. It's basically because of the geographic size of this thing, forcing a lot of the systems to curl up and come through the Gulf of Alaska. Those stories and more tonight on Alaska News Nightly. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. What gives you strength? Strength comes from teaching the Alaskan way of life, getting wood, fishing, hunting, helping people in the community, and being an example for the next generation. If you have forgotten your strength, remember, there's hope, there's joy, there's love, there's peace everywhere. Share what gives you strength at recoveralaska.org slash share your strength. This message sponsored by Recover Alaska. Thousands of Alaskans are at risk of losing their Medicaid benefits this year, many because of paperwork issues. Medicaid is health insurance for low-income Americans and serves about a third of people in the state. 260,000 Alaskans must re-enroll in the program this year or risk losing their benefits. This is after a freeze in enrollment because of the COVID pandemic. Alaska Public Media's Rachel Cassandra has more. The three-year re-enrollment pause meant recipients didn't lose Medicaid coverage even if their income went above the cutoff for the program. But this year, starting in May, Alaska, along with the rest of the country, started requiring yearly renewals again. Deb Etheridge is the director with the Division of Public Assistance. And now as the federal government is having the states unwind from that public health emergency, we're having to do renewals on just around 264,000 enrollees in the Medicaid program. CMS, which oversees the program, flagged Alaska, along with 15 other states, for its long wait times and frequent hang-ups on phone helplines. The agency fears those problems will interfere with equitable access to the program, and CMS says that could put the state out of compliance with federal requirements. Etheridge says the biggest issue they're running into is people with old addresses on file. She says some people may not be up for renewal yet, so they may not have gotten renewal paperwork in the mail. But everyone enrolled in Medicaid should have received a postcard. Those were sent out in April. We did send a postcard out to every Medicaid household. And so a person who never saw a postcard come from the Division of Public Assistance, that might be a good hint that perhaps we don't have your correct address. Because the renewals have been paused for so long, more people have experienced life changes that may affect coverage, and more people have moved to new addresses than usual. So the Department of Public Assistance is processing extra paperwork. Anyone whose address isn't updated in the system may lose coverage even if they are still eligible. In July, the percentage of people who lost enrollment for procedural reasons in Alaska jumped by a third compared to May and June. So Etheridge says her department is doing a deep dive to try to figure out what's going wrong. Anecdotally with my staff, I've I've heard that people didn't realize they were still on Medicaid. And so that may be why they're not returning the information. Etheridge says the department is hiring more people to help with re-enrollment. About a third of people up for renewal over the past three months have been automatically renewed, but about another third were procedurally disenrolled. 
Those people may still be eligible for coverage, but Medicaid couldn't automatically enroll them. This means about 10,000 Alaskans who may still be eligible for the program have lost coverage since June. Lisa Aquino is the CEO of Anchorage Neighborhood Health Center. She says about half the center's patients are on Medicaid. She has seen the confusion of the renewal process play out at her clinic. There are people that are finding out at really terrible times that they no longer have Medicaid and it's a surprise to them. And everyone's trying their best to make sure that it doesn't happen. But the reality is that for some people, it is happening. Aquino says they're helping walk patients through this renewal process. She says she wants people to know that there are options for health care, no matter their situation or income. But she's concerned about the people who will fall through the cracks in this process. The people who, I, who I'm maybe most worried about are the people that are not connected with a regular health care provider, people that are experiencing homelessness or houselessness, people that don't have an address. I'm worried about them. So far, the state has processed about 12% of renewals. About 225,000 more people will need to renew through the spring of next year. In Anchorage, I'm Rachel Cassandra. Lieutenant Governor Nancy Dahlstrom has rejected a proposed legislative term limits ballot measure, citing a Department of Law legal analysis that found the measure was likely unconstitutional. The Alaska Beacon reports that, as written, the proposed ballot measure would have limited state legislators to no more than 12 consecutive years in office and no more than 20 years in total. State attorneys also found technical flaws with the petition used to propose the measure, noting that the proponents' documents lacked legally required language. The measure's backers could challenge the state's determination, but without a challenge, the term limits measure will not advance to the signature-gathering stage and will not appear before voters next year. Various groups attempted in the 1990s to impose term limits on state legislators and Alaska's members of Congress, but each was ruled unconstitutional. In 1994, the Alaska Supreme Court ruled that because the Alaska Constitution sets the qualifications for legislative office, And because the Constitution does not set term limits for legislators, quote, the only way that term limits might be imposed would be a constitutional amendment, end quote. With the term limits measure disallowed, four other ballot measures remain in contention for next year's elections. Much of south-central Alaska is under a flood watch until tomorrow night, as heavy rains continue the region's cool summer into next week. Michael Coots, a National Weather Service forecaster, says two high- and low-pressure systems are feeding the rain. It's basically because of the geographic size of this thing, forcing a lot of the systems to curl up and come through the Gulf of Alaska and ultimately over us here in south-central. The watch, one step short of a warning, calls for up to four inches of rain in mountains north of Turnigan Arm. Anchorage, the Matanuska Valley, and the western Kenai Peninsula could see up to an inch and a half of rain. Coots says small creeks could see the worst of the flooding, especially in urban areas like Anchorage, where paved ground can't readily absorb the water. An inch of rain over one acre of ground will produce over 27,000 gallons of water. And we have a whole lot of acres over just the plain Anchorage area, much less the rest of south-central Alaska. Anchorage's local forecast calls for rain every day through at least Thursday, But Coots says sporadic breaks in the pattern, including a forecasted brief pause in the rain into Sunday, should offer residents some relief. 
still to come on Alaska News Nightly, the Matsu School Board considers weakening their student representative position. And I want us to question why we're making this decision. Is it because we think it's best for students or because we think it's best for our political opinions? That's ahead. Stay with us. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Invasive plants and animals threaten Alaska's waters and can spread to new locations by hitching a ride. Anyone can help stop aquatic hitchhikers by remembering to clean boots, boats, and trailer to remove plants, animals, and mud, drain bilge, ballast, and buckets before leaving the area, and dry equipment before using it in a new body of water. Learn more at stopaquatichitchhikers.org. This message sponsored by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The Alaska Liquefied Natural Gas Project has long promised to bring North Slope natural gas to Nikiski for export to Asia. Optimism about the project among Alaska politicians has remained high despite the long timeline and cost of the project. But last month, the Wall Street Journal reported that buyers in Japan and South Korea are not confident in the project and don't plan to make investments or sign contracts. KDLL's Riley Board talked with River Davis, one of the reporters behind that journal story. How did this particular story about the AKLNG project come to your attention? Well, we were hearing a lot from um, Japanese companies and Korean companies as well that they were being approached by some uh, political figures and people in the business world in Alaska, um, basically pitching uh, contracts and deals to these companies asking if they wanted to uh, sign up to take Alaskan LNG. And so... We started this project kind of very neutrally looking at um, sort of the trade-offs that are involved in the project. Uh, The positives, of course, being, you know, this is a project that could help with energy security and help Korea and Japan uh, transition away from using Russian gas and oil. So that was kind of the positive uh, energy security angle. Of course, uh, on the other end, we were looking at climate issues. Uh, there's been you know, some backlash about the project going forward, particularly a new fossil fuel project going forward in 2023. So that was the kind of stance we originally approached the story with. Um, but once we did some reporting, we found that The story about how there wasn't uh, a whole lot of interest in the project out of Asia, which were kind of the main target customers for the gas project, that became kind of the main angle that we discovered hadn't been told yet. That's interesting that it it started as one thing and evolved into another. And I'm, I'm curious if you could go into more detail about what sentiments you learned that people in those countries had about the project. Yeah, so the sentiment um, specifically out of Japan, I would say, is that they felt that this project has been um, happening for a long time and that it hasn't had much progress. So for Japan in particular, uh, companies here, government officials say that they want natural gas, you know, quite soon in the next couple of years is when they're going to witness their worst pinch when it comes to supply So the project's timeline um, is a little bit too far out for their wishes. And also because it has been kind of delayed for such a long time, they are a bit dubious about whether the project itself will actually get off the ground. It's really important to companies here that if they do indeed sign up for a contract to offhand gas, that a project moves forward because they will give up other contracts elsewhere. 
so that security element, I think, was a large kind of off-putting factor for them. Do these buyers have other options when it comes to getting natural gas on the timeline they're looking for? They do. Um, of course, you know, Alaska officials, um, others kind of supporting the project would say that uh, Alaska has a lot of benefits, of course, for Japan and Korea. It's um, just over a week to get natural gas shipped over here. And there's no kind of choke points that the gas has to go through uh, that could be, you know, a potential security issue. But on the other hand, uh, Japan thinks that it can get gas from other kind of secure projects. There's a lot of new supply coming um, to market, you know, around 2027, 2028, uh, out of the U.S., Australia, Middle East. Um, And so Japan sees it has a lot of options uh, beyond just Alaska at this point. In Alaska, you know, politicians are still very publicly optimistic about this project. Why do you think that attitude is still prevalent over here, even as interest is waning in Asia? Of course, you know, it's it's in the interest of people supporting the project to make sure that there's still kind of some optimism about it going forward. Um, they're in the stage where they're looking for investment in the project. So I think uh, if there's too much of kind of a, a dreary tone, that would be problematic. I do also get the sense that out of South Korea and Japan, perhaps there's a bit of information hasn't sort of uh, traveled to Alaska in the way that perhaps it would in other situations. Um, Talking to companies here, you know, they say, we're not interested in this project. Um, But I'm not sure to what extent that kind of has been directly conveyed uh, to people, you know, sitting locally in Alaska. Uh, Seems like there's a bit of an information divide there. That was Wall Street Journal reporter River Davis talking with KDLL's Riley Board. The company that owns the Pogo Gold Mine north of Delta Junction is seeking to renew a state permit that allows it to discharge processed waste into a nearby river. KUAC's Tim Ellis reports. Northern Star Resources has applied to the State Department of Environmental Conservation to renew a five-year waste discharge permit for the Pogo Mine. The Australia-based company discharges treated waste from its underground mine, man camps, and other facilities into the Good Pastor River. DEC engineer Tim Pilon says that wastewater is discharged into the river through two outlets or outfalls. Outfall 1 discharges treated mine drainage water, and alpha-2 discharges treated domestic wastewater. According to DEC, the waste coming out of Outfall 2 includes sewage and gray water. Wastes discharged by Outfall 1 include antimony, arsenic, cadmium, copper, iron, lead, manganese, mercury, and zinc. Those are the defined minerals that are available and show up in water, so those are the ones you got to keep your eye on. Pilon says Northern Star must monitor treated mine waste for those minerals, and he says they've not exceeded government thresholds. He says the company no longer monitors for cyanide in the wastewater because the toxic chemical hasn't been present in the wastewater in recent years. Cyanide has been monitored in the past, and it is not shown up. 
but it has shown up elsewhere around the mine, like two accidental releases in 2015 and 2016 of a cyanide-containing substance called paste that's used to fill mine shafts. The DEC website doesn't say that Northern Star was sanctioned for those releases, but the company paid a $600,000 federal fine earlier this year for improper handling of other hazardous wastes. That was kind of a uh, arcane sort of distinction that was made in that whole issue. Pilon says that fine was levied for a violation of a different federal law, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. The permit that Northern Star wants to renew is one required by the Federal Clean Water Act. The EPA first issued the permit in 2004 to one of the partners that developed the mine, Vancouver-based Tech Cominco, but DEC has been issuing them since then. And Pilon says there's been little or no concern expressed over that renewal in recent years. This permit's been rolled over so many times. And there have been, initially, there were lots of public meetings and, and things like that, but on the renewals, there's there's been little or no interest. No public meetings are scheduled for this year's wastewater discharge permit renewal, but a public notice issued by DEC says anyone interested in the agency holding one can request that before September 9th. That's also the deadline for submitting public comments on the permit renewal. You can find out how to ask for a meeting or comment on the permit by going to the DEC website and searching for POGO Discharge Permit Renewal. In Delta Junction, I'm Tim Ellis. Alaska News Nightly is brought to you in part by Alaska Air Cargo, serving the commerce and business needs of 20 Alaska communities, from Adak to Barrow to Ketchikan. More information at alaskacargo.com. Alaska needs more quality, licensed childcare providers. If you're interested in starting a childcare business, connect with threadalaska.org for support and guidance. There are several resources to get licensed and launched in Alaska. A licensed facility opens doors and opportunities for the business owner and creates a safer, more engaged place for children. You can make a lasting difference in the lives of children and their families. This message sponsored by Thread. A new proposal from the Matanuska Susitna School Board would significantly weaken the role of the body's student representative. The changes are a big departure from how most other student representatives across the state are included in their local school board. And as Alaska Public Media's Tim Rocky reports, the board's current representative thinks he's essentially being punished for speaking up on sensitive topics. The proposal was developed after a contentious school board meeting in May, when the board discussed a Citizens Library Advisory Committee to review books in Matsu schools for pornographic content. In several exchanges with board members, Student Representative Ben Colendo asked pointed questions on the Library Committee and one other issue. In this exchange, Colendo asks board member Oli Larson why the board would handpick citizens to serve on the Library Committee. And that's what it says, and that's what we're following. I understand and that, I but I'm, I'm not you arguing. Know, and there's, there's, there's simply, I'll go ahead and read the whole thing, I guess. No, committee really. members shall represent. <laughs> now listen, committee members. Two months later, a three-member board policy committee proposed weakening the student member's role. The new policy would remove the ability for the student to cast a preferential vote, the title of board member from the student, and only allow the student to speak once at the beginning of the meeting or if requested by the board chair. Jacob Butcher is on the policy committee that proposed the changes during a board retreat on August 2nd. Butcher declined to speak with Alaska Public Media 
and no other board members responded to requests for comment. But during a recent meeting, Butcher said the student representative was intended as a privilege for the student body. Like a lot of other good faith efforts, this uh, position is subject to pressures from outside, which I felt like from my remote position is what happened. Unfortunately, that's kind of forced the body to do a restructure uh, in order to effectively and efficiently carry out our business and to maintain the authority. The school board released a statement in August that says the changes are intended to allow the student member to leave the meeting early and to more closely align with Matsu Borough Code. Student member Ben Colendo doesn't think that's accurate. Colendo is a senior at Career Tech High School in Wasilla and the only student advisory board representative ever to be elected to the position twice. He says he plays an important role on the board. Colendo feels that he's being retaliated against for questioning board members. I always um, push to bring student voice to question or what if what they're doing is ben- actually beneficial to students. The representative is elected by other students in the Matsu who participate in student advisory board. The current policy says that the member is allowed to speak on any matter that is not an executive session or related to personnel. Kalendo doesn't feel that his comments at the May meeting were out of line. And I didn't say anything other than I want us to question why we're making this decision. Is it because we think it's best for students or because we think it's best for our political opinions or for our political stance? All of the five largest school districts in the state and the state school board have at least one student representative, and all are allowed to speak during meetings and cast preferential votes. Felix Myers is a Sitka High School student who serves on both the Sitka School Board and the State Board of Education as a student representative. Myers says that the student member's advisory vote is essential, and removing it would set a concerning precedent. I think that it is detrimental to the ability of the school board to create the best education possible for its students when it forgets about the voice of those it's actually trying to serve. When the proposal was introduced to the public, two board members said they support allowing the student to continue to speak at any point during meetings. It would take two more members to defeat the proposal. The board is likely to vote on it at their next meeting on September 6th. In Anchorage, I'm Tim Rocky. Earlier this spring, one of the most influential producers in music passed away. Chris Strockwitz was born in Germany at the end of the Second World War and emigrated with his family to the United States, where he grew to love the distinctive jazz and blues of his new home. His label, Arhuli Records, put artists like Lightning Hopkins and Mississippi Fred McDowell on the map and fostered the careers of big names like Taj Mahal and Ry Cooter. For Sitkin Suzanne Portello, the passing of Chris Strockwitz was an invitation for a pilgrimage back to the Bay Area and to Down Home Music, the record store where Arhuli is now housed. KCAW's Robert Woolsey suggested that Portello make an audio postcard of her journey. Hi there, Robert. I'm sending you the song that started my journey down the Arhuli wormhole. This is Suzanne Portello. This is the Hungarian gypsy band Chokolom performing Amarisi Amari. It's good background for a road trip, or in this case, a pilgrimage. I am here in Half Moon Bay, starting on my journey by way of a series of buses and trains to get to down-home music in El Cerrito. 
The final leg of this journey, as with all pilgrimages, is on foot. So I'm passing by the Good Stuff thrift shop on my way to Down Home Music on San Pablo Avenue in El Cerrito. And it's, it's been quite a journey. So I'm here at Arhuli uh, Down Home Music Store. And in the background, you'll hear music playing, which they have going pretty much all the time here. And I'm back looking at the selection of LPs that were produced by Arhuli uh, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And it encompasses Cajun, Zydeco, country, folk, Norteño, blues, gospel, jazz, and world. Down Home is a kind of music heaven for Portello, for anyone really. Her father played the accordion and amassed an impressive collection of 78s, a vinyl record which spun at 78 revolutions per minute, which preceded the 45 RPM singles of the rock and roll era, and the LPs, or long play albums, that followed those. And who do you suppose sits behind the counter in music heaven? JC. JC, right. Anything phonetically close, I will respond to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and not to be confused with the other JC. Yes, yes, I no get it. But, but no pretensions to divinity. No. J.C. has worked at Down Home for the last 20 years, much of that time as co-manager. So the, the storefront actually opened in 76, yeah. and Chris started the company in 60? Yeah, that's right. Right. That was the record company. The record company. Right. Our right. may have long since disappeared, an obscure record label promoting obscure artists, but for Country Joe and the Fish. That may sound like a jug band, but Country Joe and the Fish was a psychedelic rock group fronted by Joe McDonald and Barry the Fish Melton. Portello was there. I never personally knew Joe, but I did know the Fish when um, Barry Melton lived in San Francisco. Uh I lived in the same building as he did in the Mission, and we were neighbors. As Country Joe's label, Arhuli owned the publishing rights to his songs. While no one would have considered this a gold mine, as luck would have it, Joe was invited to Woodstock, yes, that Woodstock, in 1969, where he performed rock and soul music. Rock and soul music made it into the Woodstock movie, onto the movie soundtrack, and into the money. That's why Suzanne Portello can pick up an Arhuli release of American classics like Elizabeth Cotton or Earl Hooker, or the Hungarian gypsy band Chocolom, 63 years after the label was founded by the recently departed Chris Strakwitz. Doesn't it ever, like, smack you in the face what this history that you know about and are a part of and that this store is a part of? It's really neat. It's really neat. I really, you know, appreciate your talking to me and letting me look around. Um, I'm going to turn this off. This has been an audio postcard of Suzanne Portello's journey to Arhuli Records in El Cerrito, California. 
In Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. That's all for this edition of Alaska News Nightly. We had reports tonight from Rachel Cassandra and Chris Clint in Anchorage, Riley Board in Kenai, Tim Ellis in Delta Junction, and Robert Woolsey in Sitka. Our audio engineer is Chris Hyde. Tim Rocky is our producer. This is Taj Mahal, of course. I'm Casey Grove. Have a great weekend. Alaska News Nightly was made possible by Span Elite, providing same-day shipping of groceries from Anchorage to rural Alaska. Online ordering at spanelite.com. And by ConocoPhillips Alaska, building the next generation of Alaska's workforce through investments in education and vocational training to provide jobs right here at home. ConocoPhillips Alaska. If you love what you hear on your public radio station, consider becoming a member. This is statewide news on Alaska Public Media.